Welcome to All About the Sisters Wellness Podcast, where we help you reclaim your overall health and wellness. Get informed, take action, and be better at being well. I'm Melanie Painter, founder of All About the Sisters and your host. Many of us grew up in the church, and the norm for those of us who did is that it did not make room for our differences. By differences, I refer to our sexual differences, the way we chose to express our sexuality. As a Caribbean-born woman, I was raised to believe that gay people were weird or ill in their minds. Something was generally just wrong with them. I grew up Catholic where everything was taboo. Getting a tattoo was taboo. Rape and molestation were taboo. Engaging in sexual behavior of any kind was taboo. And did not really invite liberal conversations around anything that could be deemed out of order. The same seemed to have taken place in American society where the real status and work of queer black leaders and thinkers in history have largely been hidden or untold. Leaders like James Baldwin, Alvin Ailey, and Audre Lorde, to name a few. But now we are seeing something new. Conversations that used to be hidden are now out in the open, and sexuality of all types is being celebrated despite the continued work of the collective churches to denounce individual expression. I would admit that I am no expert on these subject matters, But I do know that in my own life, I take my own authenticity very seriously. If you can't be yourself, then who can you be? This is why I wanted to chat with Reverend Kendra Frazier, who has a very healthy, objective, and spiritual take on what it means to be a queer Black leader serving God, walking in her purpose, and sharing her gifts with our sisters and brothers in the Black community. Our guest today is Reverend Kendra Frazier. She's a licensed clinician in the state of New York and founder and CEO of Kind Consulting, which means knowing yourself in need of devotion. Kind offers trauma-informed care through a variety of services from clinical therapy for individuals, families, and couples to a seven-week trauma-informed training for ecclesial communities and corporate entities. Reverend Frazier is most recently the founding executive director of the Hope Center, a free mental health facility located in Central Harlem of NYC, and formerly served as the associate pastor of congressional care and wellness at First Corinthian Baptist Church. Known for her work in removing barriers to mental health access for communities of color, Reverend Frazier has been featured in multiple print and digital publications, including Vice Magazine, New York Times, and Sojourner's Magazine. She holds a Master of Divinity from Candler School of Theology at University, a Master of Social Work from Columbia University, and a Bachelor of Science in Business Management from North Carolina A&T State University. Love so that. welcome, Reverend Kendra. Welcome to the All About the Sisters Wellness Podcast. We are so happy to have you on here. I'm just like really excited to hear your thoughts I'm and to share with everybody. Thank you for inviting me to be present with you all tonight. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I want to start with your childhood. I want to just get, share a little bit about your background. Um, who was Kendra growing up? Mm. Kendra growing up was very mischievous. Um, I was extremely talkative as a child. I often used to get in trouble in class um, because I was talking when you were not supposed to be talking in class. I was told actually in the third grade, maybe the fourth grade, by one of um, uh, my teachers that I didn't know how to be a friend, which is very ironic. 
Um, I uh, grew up in a two-parent household with uh, Pamela and Sammy Frazier. Um, I have a sister, Kaylin Frazier, who's eight years my junior. My mom and dad have been together since they were my mom, 16, my father, 22. Um, So I have that solid foundation in them. Um, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, raised in the Church of God Church, which was chartered by my great grandmother, um, Maggie Cochran, over 115 years ago. Um, And it's a family church. So my mom always had my sister and I very active in the church, anywhere from being on the youth choir to junior usher to the praise and worship team. I played the piano from about the second grade to the 10th grade. And so sometimes I would sit in for our pianist when the pianist wasn't there. Grew up playing the trumpet as well from about the fourth grade to my senior year in high school. Um, And my mom put us in a little bit of everything to see what would stick. So tried tap dancing, tried ballet, Piano was what would stick. Um, Growing up, I've always been a curious child, an inquisitive child, um, and always very smart. So I was in an academically gifted program in elementary school um, and an international baccalaureate program in middle school and high school, and eventually got out of um, the international baccalaureate program and just stuck to um, AP classes um, because IB was fairly intense. Along my teenage years from about 14 to 18, I um, was able to interview for this program called Love of Learning, started by um, one of my dear mentors whose funeral homegoing celebration was February 14th of this year, Reverend Brenda Tapia. Love of Learning was a, a summer program where youth, um, African-American youth would go off to on the campus of Davidson College for um, each summer to study the uh, academic uh, subjects that we would have for the upcoming school year, as well as be introduced to extracurricular activities like channeling and yoga and Yoruba um, and meditation. And Reverend Tappy, although she was an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister, she was very open in terms of her faith. So um, Love of Learning was the first place where I met my first um, lesbian minister through this organization called Time Out Youth. Um, It was a panel of LGBTQ folks who um, had diverse intersections in terms of industry. Um, And we got an opportunity to talk to them. And that was an amazing opportunity. It was also the first place where I disclosed my sexual trauma history without my parents knowing. And this program, I build a bond with the other peers that I was with because we were together each summer. Um, And so it's actually Reverend Brenda's birthday today. So shout out to that ancestor. Um, Super, super grateful for her pouring into me and the legacy that she left um, behind for so many of us 
who were able to be gifted through that program. She had over 500 young people come through that program and a little over a hundred of us are ordained clergy people. Um, So her imprint is definitely on us and on me specifically. Um, Growing up in Charlotte was fun. I had a fun childhood. Both my mother and father had big families. They each have five siblings. So you can imagine the amount of cousins that I have on each side of the family. So it's it's a never a dull moment. My grandmother, my mom's mother was a community mother, also a cooker and a baker. And she was the one whose house we would gather at every Sunday. Um, she was the, the person that would invite the pastor over for dinner after church. Um, and so that was what I was accustomed to. Um, and the Church of God was very much present in my life. Uh, we went to church on Sundays and for Bible studies, for vacation Bible school, and everything in between. And um, that, my childhood, and the way that I grew up in terms of my religiosity and spiritual foundation has absolutely been shaped by parents that believed in what faith meant and how faith is utilized as a tool for us to make meaning out of the things that happen in our lives. And so that's something that I continue to take into my adulthood as a spiritual leader and as a clinician. Wow. Um, You and I have very similar backgrounds in the sense Mm -hmm. that I also grew up in a heavy Catholic home. I went to church every weekend I sang in the choir, played drums, gotcha. led the youth group. I mean, it was just a lot. But isn't it great that parents gave us kind of like this all-around education? Like you said, you did tapped into yoga and meditation and all of that stuff, and they put you in tap dancing and all of that stuff. Mm. I played the piano. I was too heavy-footed for ballet, but that's okay. <laughs> the teacher actually told me that after my second lesson. She told my mom, she's like, she's too heavy-footed. She can't come back. I'm like, excuse you? I don't want to be a dancer anyway, but thanks. Right. Oh, my <laughs> <Nothing>. God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. this. But um, it sounds like an amazing upbringing, just, you know, being able to tap into a lot of things. That's, that's really good. Yeah. Um, your parents Caribbean by any chance? They are not, ironically. Both from Charlotte, North Carolina. Both grew up in the projects of Charlotte, North Carolina during the 1950s and 60s. Um, yeah. Okay. And when and, and what age did you realize that you were gay? Wow. I didn't have language for it. I know my first kiss mm-hmm. from a girl was probably at the age of six. Um, and it was probably around first grade that I knew that I had a crush on one of my teachers in the first grade. Her name was Miss Blackwell. Um, and then around 12 years old, I became very clear that this attraction that I had to women to the same gender was wrong. Um, my parents caught a conversation that I was having over the phone with a girlfriend. Um, I call myself having a girlfriend at 12. I thought <laughs> I was 13 because I thought that 13 sounded a bit better. Right. And 
um, we were having this conversation because I was a junior council mentor and she was a council mentor for the same summer program about some of the things that we wanted to engage in. And it was a very sexual um, conversation for a 12 year old to have. And it got caught in the answer machine. You know, back in the day, all you needed to do was press play. Um, And so when I got home, my parents pressed play. And it was probably the first experience that I had where I felt shamed for my curiosity, for um, my desire and for my sexuality and began to have this struggle and battle from the age of 12 to about 23 in terms of what it meant to integrate my spirituality and my sexuality. Wow. I've known for a while. So when you finally came out, what was that day like and what was the family response? Ooh. When I finally, I'll start first with when I finally accepted myself. When I finally accepted myself, I was 23. Um, I moved into my first apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I remember maybe like a week prior to this moment of accepting myself, I saw this woman in a mall. And we made eye contact and I was clear when I saw her, not knowing whether she, how she identified in terms of her sexual orientation, that if I wanted to be with her, I needed to be out. Um, And so eventually she and I began to date and I was like, I need to have a conversation with God about this. i prayed numerous times for this desire to be taken away, literally for God to make me sick. If I had a same gender attraction, I fasted for this to be um, taken away. And my prayers availeth much and God hasn't been doing anything. And so when I finally asked God, because it was my first time really asking God about it, as clear as I'm talking to you now, God was like, well, I've always been okay. You never asked me. Wow. Wow. I've been making myself suffer all this time because I've been listening to the voices outside of God. I've been listening to the voices that have been interpreting this biblical text that are misaligned with um, what God is saying in this moment to me. Um, And from that point, I ask God for confirmation as we do like, God, if this is really you, cause this don't sound like how people have been telling me that you think I need a sign. And so like the day after I went to my girlfriend's house at the time and she had a brochure on her dresser that said same gender loving relationships in the black church. And it was a conversation to take place at the interdenominational theological center in Atlanta. One of the few um, all black seminaries in the country. And when I got there, I was surprised by the conversation. There were scholars and pastors and theologians talking about the clobber passages that people typically use to oppress LGBTQ folks and really affirming and teaching from a historical context about what the biblical text was saying. When I, um, after that experience at the panel, I was like, okay, God is clear. So I gained the courage and the confidence to come out to my mom and dad. And it was difficult. Um, They told me that I was going to hell. Um, When I first came out, my mom got physically ill and my mom has been my prayer partner since I was 18. And so 
it became very hard for us to pray together during that time. My grandmother, who is who is now deceased, um, my mom's mom, the one that cooks Sunday dinners, the one whose house I would go to whenever I was sick, told me that I might as well be with the dog. So it was very challenging for me coming out. Yeah. People say such hurtful things mm-hmm. when when they don't have a sense of acceptance. But did your sex out sexuality not conflict with what the Bible teaches? As you um, know the Bible to be? Yeah, it did not in terms of learning about the historical context. People always go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is not about um, homosexuality. It's about inhospitality. When you look at the Jewish culture, cultural dynamics and what it means to welcome the stranger, it's a very big deal in um, that culture. And for me, I often tell people that the Bible does not have a voice. It is an inanimate object. It is only interpreted by people and what they believe in their historical context and cultural experiences. I am clear that I serve a God that is beyond the canonical text, beyond the the opening and the closing of the biblical text. And so my relationship with God supersedes um, any sacred text that could ever be written. Yeah, I've always been a little bit confused as to how people can have a queer orientation and still serve God in, in the traditional cells of Christianity or, you know, yeah. whatever else they serve. Um, and I've had friends who I've known were very much involved in the church and I knew what their orientation, you know, was, but I was always like, how, how are you going to church? How are you able to present yourself every day? Doesn't, isn't this wrong? Isn't this, you know, um, so your, so your work as a queer black leader came into focus, um, at FCBC, the First Corinthian Baptist Church, and your work at the Hope Center. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there and how the work you did helped others in terms of coming into their own troops? Mm-hmm. I'll talk about it in a roundabout way. I actually be, um, received my call into ministry way before FCBC at 14 years old. Oh, I accepted my call at 18 years old, um, around my junior year in college, I entered into the church of God ordination process. Um, and my mom's sisters, one of her sister's brother is the pastor of the church that I grew up in. He wasn't the pastor that I grew up with. Um, but he's served there for over, for a little over 17 years. And, um, I was in that process and still struggling and became very clear in terms of my sexuality and spirituality that I did not want to be a hypocrite. And so I told him that I was going to sit myself down out of the process because there were some things that I need to figure out for myself. And so by the time I moved to Atlanta, I, um, started going to this church of God church. And around the time that I had this very clear creative encounter with God, I talked to my church of God pastor at the time in Atlanta. And it was the best pastoral care moment that I've had, um, one of them. And I, I told them that, you know, I had accepted myself as a lesbian woman, as a same gender loving person. And he asked me, so have you talked to God about it? And I was like, yeah, I talked to God about it. And then he was like, so what did God say? And I said, God said, exactly what I told you. I've always been okay, but I never asked you. And so he said, okay. And we never talked about it again. Um, And so that was around 23. By the time um, I 
I was coming into my sexuality. I was also coming into um, a more global understanding of my spirituality and started going to this church in Atlanta called New, um, it was a New Thought Church um, called Hillside Truth Center, where it was lots of LGBTQ folks in the congregation. And they had this interfaith model. The first service I went to, there was this imam preaching in the pulpit that I'd never seen before. And the scholar that was teaching Bible study at that time, his name is Dr. Rocco Erico, was fluent in Aramaic and Hebrew. So he was able to break down a lot of the Eastern metaphors and idioms that are typically misinterpreted um, through Western lenses. And so by the time 25 comes and I have this knowledge and I'm clear about who I am, I decide to go into seminary. And so I went to Canada School of Theology, Emory University, and um, had a wonderful time there. And I probably had a better time there than I had in undergrad because I was more clear and sure of who I was. After I graduated from Emory, I had an opportunity to serve um, as a chaplain resident through the clinical pastoral education program um, at uh, Grady Hospital in Atlanta, which is a level one trauma center and um, was tending to one of my units, which was a surgery ICU unit, and even ended up meeting this young man who um, came in because he attempted to castrate himself. And he attempted to do this level of harm to himself, I found out through sitting with him for a couple of days because he had a difficult time integrating his sexuality and spirituality. He felt like um, God was calling him to be a eunuch because of his same gender attraction. And he began to quote Matthew 19, Matthew's 19. And um, it was the most visceral confronting experience that I had had to that point in terms of thinking through what responsibility Christian fundamentalism had on the lives of LGBTQ folks where, particularly Black folks, where we have done harm to ourselves because we have felt that God does not welcome all of us. What role does Christian fundamentalism play in those of us that navigate depression, anxiety, bulimia, anorexia, cutting, so on and so forth? And it was through that experience that I recognized that I did not have the skill set to really support this young man effectively. And so that took me to um, wanting to go to social work school. And so I came to, went to social work school at Columbia University School of Social Work to be a better spiritual leader. And it was a dear mentor of mine that told me about First Corinthian Baptist Church in 2012. And um, she was just like, they have progressive theology and I believe they're welcoming and affirming and you'll like it. And so a friend of mine who's a gay black man moved to New York a a couple of months prior to me in 2012. And he was like, yeah, you definitely need to come and check this church out. I love it. And sure enough, he he was right. They were right. When I ended up going to First Corinthians in 2012, I absolutely loved it. Michael Warren um, Jr., the senior pastor, had this progressive theology that was in alignment with my own. Um, and it also had this cultural 
black church worship experience that I long for because I got ordained in a um, predominantly white denomination, Alliance of Baptists in Atlanta, in Decatur, Georgia, rather, um, in 2012, October 27th of 2012. So that's actually when my ministry started. Um, and FCBC, um, came on the journey in 2012 and, um, I had no idea during that time. I remember going to, um, talk to pastor Mike to who, who he's affectionately referred to in our community. I, um, remember going to tell him before I started to serve, like, look, I want you to know that I'm gay and I want to know if that is a problem. Cause if it is, you know, I can move on. Cause that's where, where I was after God said I was okay. Like nobody else really mattered. So if you're not okay, like we don't have to go back and forth. I just move on to somewhere else where I could serve. And he asked me another wonderful pastor of moment. He asked me, um, so are you a member here? And I said, yeah. And then he said, okay, then. And so that started our pastoral um, relationship and mentoring relationship. So I began to serve at FCBC in 2012. And I created a proposal called Navigating Grief, a grief group, because I was clear that people were dealing with bereavement, but there was really no space created for people to be able to process, um, not knowing that Pastor Mike was looking at all about what I was doing because it's a fairly big church, about 8,000 members. Um, and eventually I ended up graduating from Columbia, moving to um, back to Atlanta. And then um, he called me about a year in of my living in Atlanta and asked me if I would be willing to take over some of his pastoral counseling responsibilities. Um, and I was like, absolutely. Um, initially, I thought that he would have me in an office just seeing people. Um, but that's not what he had in mind. So I am so grateful that he trusted me enough to create this free mental health facility called the Hope Center, which was all white walls um, with no name and no ethos before um, he hired me in 2016. And so the Hope Center stands for Healing on Purpose and Evolving. Um, while I was there, we were able to offer 10 sessions for free of individual couples and family counseling, um, grief groups every other month. We had really cool programming in terms of mental health first aid trainings. Um, we had a wellness and self-care fair where we introduced this concept of listening sessions for people that kind of like hands off with therapy, but would welcome a 30 minute listening experience with a licensed clinician. Um, we were able, while I was there, to create a partnership with the Crisis Text Line and through um, the Hope Center's um, relationship with FCBC, because the Hope Center was under um, First Corinthian Baptist Church's Community Development Corporation, we were able to become the first church um, to have a crisis text line. Um, and so the Hope Center has a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week crisis text line that people can text um, and use by texting word WORTHY to 741741. While I was there, I also served as the, as the associate pastor of congregational care and wellness. And my responsibility was to create a care system to not only support the parishioners of FCBC, but also um, members of the community in Harlem. And so I was able to create, began creating this curriculum called um, uh, 
becoming a trauma-informed church training, which we rolled out to lay leaders first, but it really is a three-track model. Um, and each each um, track is seven modules. The first track is like a general trauma-informed track where I'm teaching lay leaders how to identify the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, um, how to de-escalate crises, how to engage in conversation with someone that's experiencing suicidal ideation, um, how to practice self-care as an intervention. The second track is like a motivational interviewing um, training track. I teach a motivational interviewing lab with uh, first-year students, first-year MSW students at Columbia School of Social Work. And so I adapted that teaching to an ecclesial church setting. And um, the last track was teaching these lay leaders how to facilitate psychoeducation groups, because it's just like everybody is not going to go to social work school or get further licensed. So how do we empower our community to empower itself? And this um, training model was what spirit gave to me. And you know, because I've been living in my truth for so long, it actually was a surprise to me how many LGBTQ folks and others were impacted and inspired by my presence as a queer woman that is saying, here I am, and preaching and teaching um, unapologetically. Um, And so I'm very humbled that um, Michael Warren had the foresight and the confidence in me to be able to lead um, in that way um, and knowing that I was a same gender loving person. I'm no longer at these institutions anymore, but I'm so grateful for my opportunity to have been able to serve in both capacities because it was truly a gift. And we appreciate all of it. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you have really like just walked into your purpose because you were facilitating all of the stuff that black folk really need. So it's like you understood the community around you and all of this you were able to feed into. They were able to receive. And for whatever time you were there, doesn't matter. I think you've really done what you were supposed to do. That was your time. So thank you. Thank you. I feel that way. I feel <laughs> that. Yeah. So what, what are the most painful parts of your work with clients? Mm. Wow. I believe that my most painful work with clients sometimes is listening for those that have been severely traumatized, listening to those stories Mm -hmm. and that pain, listening to the ways that human beings can hurt and harm one another in ways that are murderous to the spirit and the soul and detrimental to the physical well-being of um, folks that look just like them. Because the hope center, 97% of those that I worked with were African-American. Um, and, you know, dealing with folks that sat in the congregation who were abused by caregivers, molested, assaulted, products of incest, um, or had their children as a product of, of rape. Um, and having to not only navigate with them as a clinician and the executive director of the Hope Center, but also with as one of their pastors. And people are often looking for a word of comfort 
through the biblical text that can sometimes not be found. Agreed. So it just cannot be found. Um, people are looking for answers that sometimes I just cannot give. Most times I just cannot give. As a clinician, which is one of the things that I loved about the Hope Center and, and how um, I created it was that we were very clear that we are companions along the journey, that people come seeking answers, but we come to companion with them to discover the answers that are already inside of them. It's not anything that you have to look to for me. We will give you tools to excavate your truths, but ultimately you will be the one to do the digging and the healing. Um, But the the most painful part sometimes are listening to the traumatic stories. Wow. I don't know. That's probably why I'm not a social worker. I don't know if I could do it. (laughs) Like I was telling you earlier, I'm, I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit traumatized this week by everything that's been going on. So, does your faith help you balance the hurt that you, and the pain that you see coming out of the community, um, and and what you have to receive as a as a as a social worker? Hmm. I would say not only does my faith help me balance, but my spiritual practice helps me balance. I'm a spiritual being that believes in um, utilizing the spiritual technologies that I gravitate um, towards, which I have an ancestral altar in my home. I've had an ancestral altar since I was since 2014, um, being in social work school. And, and I liked my ancestral altar every morning. And I say, good morning, ancestors, spirit friends, spirit guides, guardian angels, grandmothers, grandma Cochran, grandma Nell, granny, papa, grandfather, John, grandmothers and grandfathers. I have yet to remember. Thank you all for being with me on the journey. Thank you for covering me, nurturing me, loving me, guiding me, leading me. Cause I recognize that I do not do this work alone. And it is oftentimes when we get um, saturated by our own depression and anxiety, we miss that we don't do it alone. We miss that we don't have to navigate this life alone. So that's one spiritual practice. And I absolutely believe in staying clean um, energetically. So I take lots of spiritual baths and I release things that need to be released. And I open myself up to receiving things that I need. If that's more self-love, is that if that's more um, healthy boundary setting, if that's more abundance in my life. I also believe in the power of prayer. So my mom and I continue our ritual of praying um, as we started when I was 18. So we pray every day at 9 a.m. Um, and that always supports me in being well. Um, and I believe every pastor should have a pastor and every therapist should have a therapist. So um, for the past eight years, I've had a therapist. Um, and so those are the ways that I take care of myself as I support other people in being well, because I believe that the healer always has to fill their cup first. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do believe also in uh, honoring the ancestors. And it's something new. My mom is, my, both my parents are deceased. So oh. I started this new thing, but I was obviously closer to my mom. And this pendant that I have on here, this little locket has That's her. Beautiful. That's beautiful. It has a little picture in it. And sometimes mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I used to wear it when she first died. It's 10 years this year. But when she first died, I completely did not. I, I wore it all the time for like about five or six years. And then I, 
was able to put it down. But recently I find myself thinking if I'm going to walk in the park or I'm going on a date to have fun, I always say, let me come, come on with me, mom. Just come mm-hmm. with me. Beautiful. Let's go have some fun together. Cause it, mm-hmm. And that's my way of kind of like honoring everything that she's done. Like I think about every creative thing that I'm involved in. And I was like, she gave me these tools to keep on going. And so thank that's you so okay. much for your wisdom though. Ah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Rachel. I think that's beautiful. So the real status and work of, uh, you know, other queer black leaders and thinkers in history have largely been hidden or untold. And, but you are really charting a new course um, with the work that you do. Having grown into your truth, what do you think about the future of the LGBTQ community and the fight to be seen and accepted? I feel like it's bright. I am very hopeful about it in terms of there being more visibility within um, mainstream media in terms of entertainment. I mean, to be able to watch a show like The Shy and see a lesbian couple on camera, on film that are raising their family, that are humanized in the world um, in ways that I didn't have access to when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, um, and so on and so forth in my adolescence, to be able to have um, transgendered um, loved ones in mainstream media in terms of entertainment. Um, when you think of a show like Pose um, is absolutely encouraging because somewhere a, a, a young baby, a child is struggling with accepting who they are authentically in terms of their gender, regardless of what they were assigned, is looking at this show and saying, hey, I don't have to kill myself because there is somewhere out There's someone out there who survived and is living out their truth in ways that are healing um, to be able to have um, access to other um, civil rights activists. I mean, when you think of um, the black women who started Black Lives Matters, who identify as lesbian. I mean, these things are happening because we not only need more visibility, but it is our time because black LGBTQ people are, to me, the closest model of divinity that humanity could ever have access to because we live outside of the boxes of heteronormativity, of normativity in general. And God as a being is not normative. The scripture says that God is not a man that God should lie. And they that worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. Even Genesis 1:26 starts out saying, let us make mankind in our own image. So that us means that there has to be a divine and a feminine principle, that God is both and, they, them, that God lives beyond and outside of the gender constructs that we have been taught. And so it is our time as LGBTQ Black folks to be able to live and exist in a world without violence, without murder. So my heart goes out to all my trans um, brothers and sisters um, who have been murdered at the hands of men and police who um, are fearful of operating in their authenticity. Yeah. I hope that we're going through something right now and I don't know what it is. I'm going to 
think about what it is or feel what it is. And it's, it's, I feel like the world is upending, but I also feel like it's upending in a good way. Me too. Yeah. Me too. It's scary right now, but I feel like it's upending in a good way. And when we finally get out of it, it might be, it just might be freedom in the, in the way that we've been fighting for it for a long time. So I'm kind of holding space and trying to keep my peace and wait for it. I know, every, I know a lot of people out there are angst, but you know. Yeah, please keep that mindset and that perspective because I believe that in terms of, it's definitely high volatile times. It is also high spiritual times. I believe this is um, a period in our humanity as a collective in terms of our evolution where many of the shadowy parts in our world um, are being brought to light. And because they're being brought to light, there we see them in a more visceral way and something has to change. Where, where we've been going in terms of how um, we've been treating one another historically and presently we cannot maintain um, presence in the world the way that we have been doing it as usual. So I believe like you, that eventually all these pain points will turn into some type of power, um, especially for those that have been pushed out into the margins, because I believe the margins are always the center and the root. When you learn how to take care of the people at the margins, which is really the root of the society, you learn how to live a life of freedom. So I believe that we will get to that freedom. Me and you may not see it, but I believe that we're headed there. Well, I'm hoping we see it. That's what I'm here for. Yeah, yeah I hope we see it too. I hope we see it too. So I watched this trailer for a documentary you started called A Love Supreme, Black, Queer, and Christian in the South. And I fell in love with Mrs. Rose. Oh, bless her heart. She's a mom, all queer people I think would want to have. Tell us about the documentary and uh, your intentions with it. And is it still in? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Melanie, for asking. So Spirit God gave me this um, idea in 2015 to create a documentary that featured um, Black families who have LGBTQ folks in their family systems that have either found ways to love beyond the limits of their prejudices or are still wrestling with what it means to love their LGBTQ child um, in light of the um, poor theological suppositions they receive from their pulpit that go against the LGBTQ community. Um, of course, I am was not a filmmaker in 2015, had no idea where to start. And I reached out to a filmmaker who um, I was creating a semblance of friendship with, um, Katina Parker, and told her about this idea. And Katina, who typically doesn't partner with people, she typically works solo, was gracious enough to say, yes, I want to partner with you. And I didn't even have to ask her. Um, I believe in this work and I believe that it needs to be seen. So we've been filming for almost five years now and we follow about eight families um, and we've traveled from Texas to New Orleans to Charlotte, North Carolina, to South Carolina, to Alabama um, and to some other places, Texas, um, to follow these families um, and Miss Rose that you mentioned, she is the mother of Ephia Miles, and Ephia Miles is identifies as bisexual and is a black woman that's also a licensed clinical social worker living in Atlanta. So 
we have the privilege and the gift to companion with these families um, and capture them living their lives and really talk about what um, religion um, has uh, done to their perspectives around sex and sexuality, as well as their perspectives around parenting. Um, My family is in it, my mother and father, my sister, they're in it. Um, My uh, grandmother is in it, who's 85. Um, And definitely COVID has um, put a pause on production a bit, but we're still um, at it and hope to finish it by summer of 2021. We're looking forward to it. I liked what I saw. Good, good. Very well done. I'm very, very raw and very truthful. And I think, you know, we need to see that. I think we can handle that. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for people to be honest. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, So what have you learned about coming into your own truth that helps you navigate homophobia at the very highest levels? Hmm. What have I learned about? coming into my own truth, I really have learned that my priority is cultivating my relationship with God and this higher energy, this divine energy that is my compass and my North Star. Um, Because that is a priority, it helps me create a healthy internal boundary for those that I come across whose belief systems are not in alignment with my own. It helps me recognize that I don't have to go back and forth with people to defend myself or my position about my ontology or my very being Um, because people are at their own evolutionary journeys and points of understanding and awarenesses in life. I mean, I think about my mom. It took her almost eight years, eight years to be okay with who I am as a same gender loving person. And she still may have some hangups here and there, you know? So this experience has taught me that as much patience as I had to have with myself to be comfortable with who I was, I mean, for 23 years, it took me um, to invite people into the authenticity of my sexuality. I can offer some grace and some mercy to those that uh, may be homophobic. Um, and not internalize the vitriol that can be spit out from people who are either afraid of welcoming themselves as um, same-gender-loving people or queer people, so they project their fear and hate of themselves onto other people, Um, and for people that simply just don't understand because they've been misinformed by fundamentalist um, religious ideology. So it, it, this journey for me has become about um, being, being present as a spiritual leader, even with people who would be willing to have a conversation, but don't think or see like me. I think that that is the only way that we can begin to have conversion experiences in our world where people who have opposing viewpoints can sit down at the table, respect each other enough to allow space for differing opinion. And in some way, you begin to form this relationship that gives way to more understanding. Not that you ever have to agree, but that you that you get to a point where you can at least understand how this other human being is engaged in the world. That's the work that my company Kind um, Consulting does, um, and that and it is my hope that Kind, which stands for Knowing Yourself in Need of Devotion, will create a movement about what it means to um, not only practice kindness. Um, 
to me, kindness is not a soft way of engaging life. Kindness is about showing the love that holds people accountable um, with the balance of compassion. Um, so that is my hope, my legacy that I hope to leave behind. I think you just answered my last question, which is when it's all over, all we remain with is love. Given all of your unique experiences with the church and mental health and just people in general, your queerness, your own queerness, what's your take on love? Ah, my take on love. Um, Love is an action word. It's not simply something that you just say. To me, love um, means that you practice um, integrity and honesty at all times and ways that not only takes care of yourself, but takes care of the other, even when you don't like them, even when the other has done something to offend you, that you still find ways to love them into their wholeness. That may mean that you have to set a healthy boundary where you can't be in close engagement or proximity to them, but that you can do the healing work on yourself that when you see them, you can forgive. When you see them, you can offer grace. When you see them, you can offer mercy. And that is a very challenging work to do, but it's something that I am intentional about doing every day. It is hard, but it is worth it. That's what love is to me. Mm, Very deep. I like it. Thank you, Melanie. You just said some things that just made me realize that I have been doing that work without being able to put it in words for myself, you know, Mm -hmm. offering and extending grace to people, Mm -hmm. but also setting a boundary so that I can work on me in the meantime. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that. It's 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 kind of above their, the way they can accept, you know, mm-hmm. they'll think, well, she shut me down or you ghosted me. I didn't ghost. I'm working on me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is hard. I mean, in the book, The Four Agreements, one of the first agreements is not to take it personal. No. Yep. To take a person, to not take it personal, especially if you've been with someone and they're giving you the silent treatment. Right. Um, ghosting you. Um, I just broke up with an ex of mine. We've been together for almost two years and she's not talking to me anymore, but I've decided that she is on her healing journey and her healing journey for her includes not speaking to me right now. You know, three, three years ago, two years ago, I would have been highly upset, but I know that she does not have the capacity to give me what I need in this time. So why would I be upset with someone that does not have the capacity to give me what I need? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. what kind of work does kind consulting do? Uh, thank you for asking. So um, we do direct practice, individual couples and family counseling. We also offer executive listening sessions for small to medium um, sized companies um, for organizations that are looking for a creative and innovative way to support their employees, but they don't really want to offer therapy because of the high stigma around seeking mental health services. We also offer trauma-informed trainings to ecclesial communities and corporate entities, um, and we do a slew of creative programming. We just, um, in June, um, offered about three programs um, for uh, Pride Month. One of them was God, Genesis, and Gender, a panel where we brought theologians, um, entertainers, artists, um, and academicians to talk about 
um, the Genesis text 1, 26 through 28, um, and their thoughts and views about God and gender. Um, then we had a religious trauma workshop look, that was called Beyond Church Hurt, specifically for LGBTQ folks led by myself and a dear friend of mine, Reverend Aquarius Gilmer, who was the first ordained um, Black gay man at First Corinthian Baptist Church. Um, and then we also had an evening with LGBTQ storytellers where we featured the works of um, a transgender woman, um, Dr. Joy Layden, um, as well as Dr. Robert Harvey. And so we're super excited to be able to do programming like that. And I also facilitate retreats, um, meditation retreats through um, an organization, a partnership called Buddhist Insights. Um, so I'm hoping to be able to do that before the year ends. Um, and we all, I also offer um, leadership development retreats, um, spiritual retreats for corporate organizations and church organizations. So we do a, we do a lot, but we're grateful that it's all about healing and being. Where can we find you? You can find me right now on Facebook. Um, my website is currently being worked on by my web developer, um, but my Facebook and Instagram is my name, Kendra Frazier. Kendra is spelled with a Y, not with an E. So it's K-Y-N-D-R-A. The last name is Frazier, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R. On Twitter, I am Kind Inc. K-Y-N-D-I-N-C. So you can follow me on all those platforms. On Facebook Live on Mondays, every Monday at 10 a.m., I do um, a uh, segment called Movement Mondays to shift us into higher states of consciousness and ways of being. So you can find me there at 10 a.m. every Monday on Facebook Live. Nice. We are going to definitely tap into that. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Reverend Frazier, for joining the All About Sisters podcast. We, we are absolutely, absolutely honored to have had you on here. Been a gift. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your courage to create this platform, for your courage to be authentically who you are. So keep on um, paving the way for people that are going to listen to this podcast and this platform and gain their own courage to be authentically who they are. Thank you. I'm Melanie Painter, and I thank you for listening. For more about All About the Sisters, please go to www.allaboutthesisters.com or check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts. Want to know more about our guests? Check the description of this episode down below.